Welcome to the AFP Report. This is your host, John Friend. Today is Thursday, April 6th, 2023. This is the 38th edition of the AFP Report, a podcast series where I will be interviewing reporters and contributors to American Free Press, America's last real newspaper, as well as other special guests. Please consider subscribing to American Free Press if you are not already. Subscription details can be found at AmericanFreePress.net. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Barrett, a leading voice in the alternative media and a regular contributor to American Free Press. All right, Dr. Kevin Barrett, welcome back to the program, sir. How are you this afternoon? I'm well, John. Good to be back with you. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to speak with me once again. You are one of the leading voices in the alternative independent media. You host your own radio program and live stream programs, and I know you have your own Substack page which I will have linked when I post this podcast. And then, of course, you are a regular columnist to American Free Press, America's last real newspaper, and you have been for a number of years now. And let me first off just encourage listeners who are not already subscribing to the paper to go out and pick up a subscription today. Check out AmericanFreePress.net, and please do consider supporting our efforts. AFP is one of the last remaining alternative independent print newspapers remaining in this country. So again, please do pick up a subscription today if you do not already have one. So uh, Dr. Barrett, I want to focus on a couple articles published in the most recent edition of the paper, which is issue 13 and 14. And that issue just went to press last Friday. So it's currently being printed and will be mailed out to all subscribers this week. It should arrive soon in the next couple days if it is not already. And you and I both wrote articles on, to me, what is one of the most important topics facing the country and really facing the world at the moment. And that is, of course, the status of U.S. hegemony in the world and the, you know, their dominance of international geopolitical relations. We appear to be witnessing the end of this unipolar U.S.-dominated world order that has largely prevailed since World War II. It's a world order that has brought about death and destruction and mayhem all across the world, including even to the American people themselves, I would argue. And now we appear to be seeing the emergence of a multipolar world order led by a budding and rapidly expanding political and economic alliance between Russia and China. So um, just to get started, uh, I'm, I'm just curious, do, do you want to just kind of respond to what I said and, and talk about the importance of this development? I think it really is sort of game changing. Yes, I agree, John. And in fact, uh, I think it's hard to keep up these days with all of the uh, evidence and developments that the U.S. unipolar empire that's been really st- self-styled, you know, the total in total charge of the world since 9-11 and was largely, you know, dominating much of the world since World War II, is now falling apart. So there's a whole new international order emerging now. And there's just one thing after another happening that, again, it's, it's really hard to keep up with. And I think a lot of folks don't keep up with it because the mainstream media doesn't cover these developments. But, you know, for example, just a day or two ago, uh, Saudi Arabia gave Joe Biden the proverbial finger and uh, cut their oil output, thereby jacking up oil prices a pretty ridiculous amount. I think it's like the biggest price increase in, I forget how long, a pretty long time. 
And of course, that is going to torpedo Biden's reelection campaign, which might not be such a bad thing, I suppose. <laughs> but in any case, uh, that's an example of the way the world has gotten out of U.S. control, because uh, uh, the basic pillar, one of the most basic pillars of U.S. domination of the world since World War II was control of oil pricing through Saudi Arabia. And Roosevelt had cut a deal with Ibn Saud in uh, 1945 or thereabouts, 44 maybe, uh, to basically give the U.S. the uh, total control over oil pricing. And in return, uh, Saudi Arabia would get protection. And that's been the deal ever since. There's There have been moments where it almost fell apart, such as summer of 2001, when the king of Saudi Arabia announced that it was time for a parting of the ways and that Saudi Arabia was leaving the U.S. empire. And then 9-11 happened, and we, a bunch of the anti-empire people in Saudi Arabia suddenly turned up dead, and uh, Saudi Arabia was reeled back into the U.S. empire. But now bin Salman, for all of his downsides, and there are many, uh, at least seems to have the uh, the gall, the admitigated audacity to be leading Saudi Arabia out from under this uh, U.S. imperial control. And and that's huge because that means that the petrodollar is no longer propping up the U.S. dollar. So the demise of the U.S. dollar no longer becomes a question of, well, how many years or even decades will it be? It's It could be months even or, or maybe single digit years or maybe low single digit years. In, any, in other words, the dollar is looking shaky and the empire is too. And so that was just the development from the last few days. And, mm -hmm. you know, it seems like every, every few days, every week or something else. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And actually that's something that um, I, I sort of allude to in, in the front page um, article of this current issue. And that article is titled U S hegemony over with a question mark. Um, and then I, it, I, you know what, actually I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs here to, to kind of get started. Um, I say here, the U.S. has long maintained its geopolitical hegemony through threats, military action, color revolutions, disinformation campaigns, and other dirty tricks, but that is all changing. Increasingly, self-assertive countries around the world, including the global powerhouses of Russia and China, but also smaller regional players such as Saudi Arabia, Brazil, and Iran, have realized there are other options than simply taking orders from whatever regime is ruling in Washington. For example, on March 11th, Saudi and Iranian leaders met in Beijing to sign the joint trilateral statement. Brokered by the Chinese, a major diplomatic coup against the U.S., which has traditionally played a leading role in such negotiations. The deal paves the way for the two energy-rich Middle Eastern nations to reestablish diplomatic ties and reopen embassies. After years of hostility and breakdowns in diplomatic relations, Riyadh and Tehran vowed to work together to enhance regional and international peace and security while committing to non-interference in each other's internal affairs. And a sign that the U.S. has lost sway over the oil-rich Saudis, who have increased their cooperation with China and Russia in recent years, the Chinese foreign ministry brokered the blockbuster deal in an effort to calm tensions in the region and bring security, trust, and a cooperative spirit back to the Middle East – something decades of U.S.-led wars of aggression have completely undermined. And, you know, I got to say, I, I'm not certainly no, – I'm certainly no expert in, you know, Middle Eastern affairs, but I actually didn't even recognize how strained relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran have been in recent years. And I'm curious. I know you follow developments over there probably a lot closer than I do. I'm, I just – I have to ask you, what role has the U.S. played – 
and exacerbating these tensions? And are we seeing that? Obviously, we're seeing the influence and sway that the U.S. has over Saudi Arabia rapidly decreasing. I mean, you just mentioned how they're willing to settle uh, oil transactions outside of, of the traditional you know, petrodollar. So I'm curious, I mean, what role has the U.S. played in, in exacerbating these tensions between two of the leading you know, regional powers in the Middle East, two countries that you know, I would think just off the top of my head would be natural allies, right? Yeah, well, of course, the U.S. has been uh, sending terrorists to murder people in Iran uh, among the 17,000-plus Iranian civilians and, and a few government people uh, murdered by terrorists uh, over the past few decades. A, a sizable number of those were killed by U.S.-supported terrorists one way or another, whether it was you know, deniably supported terrorists like the, the MEK back when it was listed as a terrorist group by the U.S., but elements in the U.S. empire were still supporting it. And then they got delisted, of course, and uh, supported even more. And the, this ongoing wave of terrorism against Iran and on, ongoing wave of sanctions and other punitive measures aimed at destroying Iran's economy has been going on. All of, all of this essentially has been happening since 1979, when the uh, Iranian Islamic Revolution happened and overthrew the U.S. puppet Shah. So the U.S. has been hammering on Iran ever since then, whereas Saudi Arabia, as I mentioned, has been a quote-unquote ally, meaning essentially a, a vassal state uh, since World War II. And the U.S. has lavished money and arms on Saudi Arabia, uh, usually selling the weapons at a lot more than their uh, just price, and has generally profited from this kind of lopsided relationship where the deal is really that you know, the, the Americans prop up the Saudi regime, and in return, the Saudi, Saudi regime gets U.S. protection, stays in power, and makes a lot of money and is able to put their billions in Swiss bank accounts and has a good time. While the Saudi people maybe are not doing so well, up until not that long ago, the majority of the Saudi population was non-literate and impoverished. And, of course, that's changed somewhat, but not as fast as it would have if the Saudi government were interested in the well-being of its own people rather than in taking U.S. orders. So that's been the situation. The U.S. has, has been, quote-unquote, supporting, meaning actually kind of dominating and ripping off Saudi Arabia while uh, beating up on Iran. And this, you know, that's all been going on since 1979. And as part of that arrangement, the U.S. has stoked up tensions between the two by essentially paying the Saudis, really, to be hostile to Iran and, and uh, not just tolerating but actually uh, encouraging uh, Saudi hostilities towards Iran and Saudi uh, uh, intentions to grab more geopolitical power in the region at the expense of Iran. And that's what happened when the U.S. either encouraged or, or tolerated the uh, Saudi uh, attack on Yemen when the Saudis went after the Houthi government in Yemen and started that war. Now, there are conflicting reports that it, some in the Obama administration, including Obama himself, were not enthusiasts of that war. But there probably were other elements in the U.S. that were uh, encouraging uh, MBS to go after the Yemenis. And so uh, that's just one example. There's also been, of course, all kinds of uh, religious uh, propaganda aimed at dividing Sunni and Shia Muslims. And at, before the invasion of Iraq, there was really no issue between Sunni and Shia Muslims in Iraq or even in the region. And then... The Americans moved in, and uh, the resistance 
the armed resistance was dominated by nominal Sunni Muslims, a lot of whom were not all that religious and they're more tribal in their orientation. And, and of course, that had been the bulwark of Saddam Hussein's government. And then the uh, the Shia Muslims, who were actually a majority in Iraq, had been somewhat dispossessed and, and underrepresented in, in Saddam's government. And they chose to, for the most part, not wage much of an armed insurgency. Now, many of them did, of course, contribute to armed insurgencies, but they were much more low-key. And the overall dominant position of the majority of Iraqi Shias was to basically work with the Americans in such a way as to have actual democratic elections because they knew they would win power under real democratic elections. So, and of course, that's what happened. Uh, so that split the two groups. And then the U.S. encouraged the hatred between the two by doing things like orchestrating false flag bombings, like the bombing of the Golden Dome was a notorious false flag designed to uh, turn the Shias and Sunnis against each other. There are many other examples of that as well. And then the creation of ISIS, which is a rabidly anti-Shia group, was almost certainly uh, a product of, of the U.S. And I actually just wrote about that in the latest Substack piece I put out, you know, pushing back against the ADL hit piece against me. But, so the long story short is, yeah, the U.S. has been largely responsible for these tensions. And to the extent that it wasn't directly the U.S., it was the, the Zionists. Mm -hmm. Of course, they've been dominating U.S. Mideast policy, so all of these policies tend to have a big, you know, big Zionist spin and are designed for um, for the Zionists to profit from them. So, yeah, the, the dividing those two was was a U.S. And, and Israeli imperative. Now that they're no longer divided, that's a huge loss to the U.S. empire, but it's a huge gain for the people of the region and of those two countries. Absolutely. And I think it's absolutely a huge story that this deal was actually brokered by the Chinese. Here's the Chinese being you know, responsible, respectful diplomats and, you know, arranging for these two, you know, regional powers to come together, reestablish diplomatic relations. I didn't even realize that they didn't even have embassies in each other's countries. I didn't realize the extent of this, you know, major divide between these, these two countries. So that to me is a huge deal and a, a huge indication that U.S. influence in the region is rapidly being undermined. And and I think that's a very positive welcome development, right? I mean, this is what we get from the U.S. This is what, you know, U.S. domination, you know, in this unipolar world order, this is what, this is what we get. We get offensive wars of aggression based on total and complete lies, destroying entire nations in the, in, you know, in the Middle East, color revolutions, and, you know, the funding of active terrorist organizations. And I remember reading at the time, like when the Iraq war, um, you know, was first launched and, in, 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 you know, in the years after these, as you mentioned, these like outright false flag attacks where Shiite mosques were being targeted, you know, for no reason. I mean, who is doing this? It, it has the fingerprints of like the CIA and Mossad and these like deep state actors, um, you know, and these uh basically terrorist organizations being funded and manipulated by Western intelligence agencies designed to stir up internal conflict in the country. So on the one hand, we have, you know, at, at the sort of like national level, the U.S. playing, you know, regional powers off, you know, against each other while encouraging internal divisions within Iraq, for example, or Yemen or Syria or whatever. So, I mean, that's, that's what U.S. policy is, is to divide the world to, cre to create, you know, chaos and mayhem, to outright invade countries and, and overthrow their governments, or fund color revolutions designed to overthrow and target uh, regimes viewed as, quote-unquote, unfriendly to the U.S. And then, you know, you look at the, the financial side, we see nothing but economic exploitation, debt slavery, 
and financial mayhem. That, that's that's basically the U.S. unipolar world order in a nutshell. The U.S. dictating to everybody how things are going to go, and if they don't get their way or if they get any sort of feedback or, or, or resistance, they will either outright invade the country or you know instigate a color revolution to remove the regime in power. And it's just totally outrageous and totally unacceptable and totally contrary to traditional American you know, sort of understanding of international relations. I mean, you go back and, and read like George Washington's farewell address, for example, where, you know, he talks about maintaining, um, you know, you know ba- like not favoring any one particular nation and, and, and maintaining, you know, independence and non-alliance. And, and that's the policy that America should be should be taking. But of course, that's that's not at all what U.S. policy has been over the course of the past four or five decades since the you know, since World War Two. Yeah, that's right. And we became an empire after World War II. And, you know, there are two ways of looking at, at that. One is to say that Roosevelt was a genius at figuring out how to orchestrate things so that that war would put the U.S. on top of the world, which it did. And so as a sort of geopolitical strategist, he did pretty well. There are criticisms that he was too easy on Stalin, but that ended up working out OK for the American imperial project. So that's you know, one way of looking at it. But another way of looking at it is that this was really the death knell of the American Republic and that it would have been much wiser to go with the anti-interventionist forces, the so-called America First movement that was opposed to U.S. entry into World War II, having seen the folly of uh, World War One and the U.S. participation in that war, which obviously had no American interest whatsoever involved in that war. Uh, so that non-interventionist movement would have pointed out that even if you get your empire, that's going to destroy the republic. You can't you can't be a Republican and empire at the same time. And so the real patriots are the people who are attached to the ideal of the republic. And yes, we've had that tension between the imperial and Republican uh, with the small r tendencies in our history. And there's been a little bit of both as our forefathers conquered new territories and annexed them and so on. Uh, But the ideal of a republic is basically anti-imperial. I mean, the republic was founded as a revolution against imperial Britain. And so that ideal has always been there. And it really got fully thrown under the bus with World War II. And so I, I would argue that it was a mistake, that entering World War II in the first place was a mistake, and that building this U.S.-based world order after World War II was also a mistake because it betrayed our own ideals. And honestly, I, I think these people and a lot of people I, I respect and admit are highly intelligent and better informed than I am, like Alfred McCoy, for example, uh, who argue that this post-World War II U.S.-dominated world order has been wonderful because the world has become so prosperous and the U.S. has been relatively benevolent and all of this. Uh, there hasn't been an all-out World War III, and that's thanks to the the managers of the American empire who were able to head it off through all of these wise choices, as well as a few mistakes, but we overcame those. There's that whole narrative that you get even from, from smart people like McCoy, but I don't really buy it. Uh, first, no, not, not at all. (laughs) I mean, the post-World War II world has not, it hasn't been all that great. And the United States in particular has been involved in war after war after war and CIA intervention after CIA intervention after CIA intervention, drowning the world in blood. You know, Noam Chomsky and Andy Volchek wrote that book um, on U.S. Uh, what was it on Western terrorism, in which they tallied up 
the, the death count from U.S. wars and intervention since World War II, and it came up to about 60 million people. So that's 10 uh, conventional versions of the Jewish Holocaust uh, since World War II, 10 Holocaust since World War II. That's, that's not so great, is it? And how, how would the world have been if some other uh, world order had emerged from World War II that you know, didn't have this aspiring U.S. Uh, empire trying to dominate it? Well, maybe it maybe there would have been a World War III. Maybe not. We don't really know. But I'm not convinced it necessarily would have been any worse. And right now, with the Chinese uh, using trade and diplomacy to get their way, while the U.S. tries to use threats, uh, debt slavery, and ultimately violence and lies to get its way, it sure looks to me like China, which you know has a long checkered history, but not it doesn't have a history of going out abroad in search of monsters to slay. It doesn't have a history of going all over the world, uh, slaughtering and colonizing people. Uh, and they had much larger and better ships than the Europeans did 500 years ago, uh, and they didn't use them. Actually, it was 600. They were they were ahead of the Europeans. They could have easily done the kind of colonizing projects that the Europeans did a little bit later. And the Chinese chose not to, and then they sh they shut down their big uh, world cruising, ocean going navy without, and and that when they used it, it just sailed around the world trading peacefully with people, unlike what the Europeans did. So frankly, I think this transition from a Euro American world order to a sort of Chinese centric world order, which will also have significant places for the Islamic world, uh, the Eastern Orthodox world, and and, and so on. Uh, will probably be positive because if if you're just trying to take a a fair and balanced and objective view of things, this uh, period of European and latest lately U.S. domination of the world has been a bloody disaster, and the evidence would suggest that China can't get it much worse and probably will get it a lot better. Yeah, I I totally agree with you actually, <laughs> and you know it's it's kind of funny saying that because. Um... You know, most Americans, you know, want USA to be number one and sort of have that mindset. But it's like, look at look at what we have done on the world stage. Well, we were better when we were number two, and the British were number one. Yeah, I mean, it's just like it's shameful. It's it's disgusting. It's it's totally unacceptable. I mean, it's just like one outrageous crime spree after another. You know what I mean? So, and and and, and the the Russians and the Chinese clearly recognize the the destructive nature of this. U.S. centric world order. In fact, um, I think last podcast we did, we actually discussed that um, that Chinese uh, policy paper released by the their Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, talking about U.S. hegemony and its perils, basically, and and you know sort of like offering a, just a scathing critique of, of this U.S. centric world order. And, and the Russians say similar things. I mean, they're basically on the same page, and they're absolutely spot on. They're absolutely right about that. Um, and your article, you focused on your article in the most recent issue of, of AFP. You talked about the um, the summit that was held in Moscow between Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping. And um, the article is titled Russia, China, Turn World Upside Down. Um, did you follow the summit closely? And I'm curious, what did you think of the Western press's coverage of it? Uh, well, the Western press's uh, coverage was distorted by uh, you know a number of things. One of them was that they had the ICC put out an arrest warrant on Putin right before that summit, and that was an attempt to skunk the summit or to try to discredit it in advance. 
uh, by putting out you know, negative news at the same time the news of the summit broke. And then they also covered it by trying to say that it was it was bad for China and bad for Russia to be getting this close. And the Western media's case that it was bad for Russia is that China is so much bigger economically that the China-Russia partnership will end up being one run by the Chinese and the Russians will just be vassals of the Chinese. And then they say it's bad for China because cozying up to that evil dictator Putin who's waging this horrible war in Ukraine will totally ruin China, China's chances to have any influence in the world. Mm -hmm. And of course, both of these uh, talking points are nonsense. It's a win-win deal. And that's what the Americans can't seem to understand. Their whole mentality is that everything has to be a zero-sum game. There's no such thing as win-win in their minds, especially the neocons. They're the most extreme version of this. You know, the neocons are basically philosophical psychopaths. And so they can't even imagine that anybody would ever want to get involved in any win-win uh, game. But for the Chinese and the Russians, you know, number one, the Russian economy is not as much smaller than the Western, as the Western media says. The Russian economy looks uh, much smaller than it really is because the econometrics currently running the West, you know, are used in the West, are not accurate. You know, they're basically counting every time you know, some somebody, uh, you know, pays to uh, pays interest on a loan and, and eventually goes bankrupt. I mean, all of this this kind of money goes to the GDP because that's all financial services. Right. Interest being paid uh, on debt, even uh, the you know skyrocketing out of control, uh, exponential interest. That's all money that gets added to your GDP as does you know, every time some rich person in Beverly Hills gets their poodle hairstyled for $10,000, that goes to the GDP. All of these kinds of services in our service economy go to the GDP. But of course, real wealth involves taking real stuff out of the ground usually or growing it and then turning it into something useful through operating on it, usually in factories and things like that, and then transporting it to where people can use it. And that part of the economy, you know, mining and minerals and agriculture and all that sort of thing, that if you measure that, and there's a way of doing purchasing power parity that compensates to some extent for the distortions in the Western econometrics, you measure it that way, and it turns out that Russia's economy is bigger than Germany's, uh, and it's not this tiny little backwater that the Western media tries to say. And so China is not as dominant over Russia economically as it looks. Now, yeah, they're still they have a much bigger economy than Russia, no no doubt. But Russia does have a formidable military, as it is showing in in Ukraine. It's obviously not a military that's about to steamroll over all of Western Europe, which is what the propagandists would like to make us fear. But you know they have they have enough uh, nukes. Oh, they they're the biggest nuclear power on earth, actually, and uh, they have immense resources. And then China has an immense manufacturing capacity. So the combination of the two, the Russian resources and the Chinese manufacturing capacity, is sets them up for a win-win. And that's what they're doing. And Absolutely. So, yeah. So, so well, so and those, see, and, and that's that's my point is is the U.S. could, you know, foster a win-win economic and, and, and trade relationship with with Russia and with China. It doesn't have to be this way. And and that's what's so you know so so frustrating about U.S. foreign policy. As as you said, it's basically a zero sum game like it's either our our way or the highway We're, we get what we want you get nothing and it doesn't have to be like that and you can just just reading like you know hearing like the rhetoric from the chinese and the russians you know what they're all about what this multipolar 
world order that they're sort of building and developing, what it's all, what it's based off, what it's all about. Sounds like a much better deal for everybody involved than, you know, the U.S. dictating to, to the whole world, you know, how things are going to be. Um, and, and, and that's on display in a number of ways. I mean, it, if you look at like the um, – well, I mean the, this most recent summit, I think there were 14 major diplomatic, economic, and political agreements that the, the Russians and the Chinese signed. And, you know, they're increasing cooperation in all sorts of fields, including trade and infrastructure development, science and military development, agriculture – um, even like cultural type activities like sporting and, and things of that nature. And th this is the way diplomacy should be conducted, right? I mean, you want to create win-win situations for, for both parties involved. But again, that's not at all how the U.S. acts. And, you know, just, just looking at like what Jinping and uh, Putin were saying in the aftermath of the summit, even leading up to the summit, they're talking about how their cooperative alliance is based on lasting friendship and win-win cooperation. Their relationship is based on mutual respect and peaceful coexistence. I mean, what is wrong with that? Why can't why can't American diplomats engage in in that sort of you know have that sort of mindset, right? I mean, it's just it's 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 maddening. And yet, you know, here we see the Russians and the Chinese, and you know how how they're talking and, and appear to be acting as well. I mean, it's not just all talk. I think that they do genuinely respect each other and do want to create and foster these win-win situations for both countries and for for the for the broader world, for that matter. Yeah, I think so. And there's no reason why the U.S. couldn't have that attitude, at least not that I can see. The you know, Putin actually is is kind of um, dis, dis yeah I guess you, you, I don't know if heartbroken would be too strong of a word but Putin is is uh, uh, very uh, unhappy that his attempts to get a more positive relationship with the West going fell apart and well know, and, and, and he's been he's been sort of attempting to to foster this sort of relationship with the West since he came into office. That's true. I mean, yeah. that's been his mindset from day one, and now he's realizing that there's just no, there's no rationalizing with these people. These these people that rule the United States and, and NATO and the EU are criminally insane. <laughs> that's basically the conclusion that he's come to, I think, after all these long years of attempting to deal rationally with these people and respectfully. They just want nothing to do with it. They want to they want to control everything. They want Russia to be subservient. And they want the entire world to remain subservient to the to the dictates of the United States. Right. And if you ask, why is that? You know, there are, I suppose there are a number of possible answers. One is that the neoconservatives, who, as I said, are psychopaths who arrive at that position through a misreading of the history of philosophy, uh, they, they, by definition, really cannot engage in any kind of win-win uh, cooperation for them. Everything is a zero-sum sum game. Everybody is a psychopath like them. Everybody's always out for the most. So that's just how they see the world. And that really extremist kind of position got hardened into place when the neocons took over the U.S. with the 9-11 coup d'etat. Before that, they had been the crazies in the basement. That's what Bush 1 called them when they were advocating uh, going to Baghdad after Gulf War One, And so that's one reason is we have these ideological extremists uh, in power. And then uh, a second reason is that we also have the neoliberals who are their own kind of ideological extremist. And some of them, their, their ideology actually, with the confused ones, it, their ideology bleeds over into the neocon one. These neoliberals believe 
it's their uh, mission uh, in life to make everybody else like them, to enforce their particular way of life, their laws, their legal system, and their culture on the entire world. And so they want to eliminate all sorts of traditions around traditional religions, traditional families, and so on, and enforce a hyper-individualist kind of approach with uh, a notion of so-called human rights that uh, emphasizes things like uh, feminism, LGBTQ, and things like that, that uh, demolish the traditional families that are the source of the traditional cultures. And of course, they also demolish the traditional religions. And so they uh, have a kind of an ideological extremism as well. And they don't want to allow China to be Chinese or Confucian. They don't want to allow Russia to be Eastern Orthodox. They certainly don't want to allow Muslims to be Islamic. And so they have to try to enforce American-style liberalism on the entire planet. George Soros is a good example of a person of that bent. And so that's another reason. That's the other ideology that it supports this kind of you know, world takeover attempt. Right. But then there, there's also a material reason. And, and you know, John, if, if you had like a, an heir who had inherited a large sum of money and was living on a substantial fraction of that inheritance each year, and it was the inheritance was going lower and lower and lower – at some point, they would have a choice of either using a little bit less of their inheritance and maybe going to work, getting at least a part-time job, uh, or uh, going bankrupt. And or they could become a criminal, I suppose, and run around, you know, robbing banks and, and robbing people. Uh, so the U.S. empire is in a position a little bit like that because we've been getting a free ride from dollar hegemony. The dollar has been the de facto global reserve currency, forcing everybody to use dollars, creating a massive artificial demand for dollars that allows the the feds, the people who control our dollar supply, to just print it out of nothing in huge quantities, enough to pay for 800 military bases pointing guns to the heads of all the world's leaders and all the world's peoples. And so we're, we're living way beyond our means. We don't produce as much anymore. We sent our manufacturing abroad, much of it to China. And so now we have this rentier economy that tries to live on interest payments and and services and patents and stuff and intellectual property and yada 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 all this stuff that is really not just taking stuff out of the ground and making it useful for people and the rest of the world looks at that and says man you're a parasite this can't go on forever mm -hmm. but from the parasite's perspective it you wish it would go on forever or you might you know and and that's the really the compromising that our leadership needs to do will entail a certain amount of readjustment of the american standard of living and the american uh manufacturing economy as we become a productive country again and i think that's the material reason for for all of this is that it's you know we've been in, engaged in this parasitism this imperial parasitism parasitism demanding a de facto imperial tribute in the form of uh, of forcing people to take toilet paper dollars for so long that living in another way is going to be difficult, just like our imaginary lazy heir who's inherited a large sum of money. Maybe he likes his lifestyle. He doesn't want to have to go back to work. He doesn't want to have to take a part-time job. And so he'll rob you uh, blind or he'll, he'll go on a, a criminal spree to try to head off that eventuality. So I, I think that's that might actually be the most powerful reason because, you know, people are heavily motivated by their financial interests. Yes, yeah, those are all very, very good points. And um, one of the one of the most important points I think you make in your piece for for American Free Press is that the the, the U.S. is trying to prop up this dying empire using violence and lies and disinformation and color revolutions and all the other things that we talked about previously, 
while this emerging Russia-China alliance and, and like the broader BRICS coalition, um, including Brazil, India, uh, is, is I think South is it South Africa that's part of it as well? Yes. Yeah. yeah that's, okay. that's the S part. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's like the most recent addition to this alliance. They're, I mean, the way that the, the sort of world order that that they're striving to establish is based on trade and diplomacy and and mutual respect, and 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 respect for the sovereignty of of foreign nations and not interfering and trying to impose our form of government or our, our values, our ideals. And these aren't even really most Americans ideals. I mean, I don't think most Americans support, you know, promoting gay marriage and, and transgenderism across the world. I mean, this is something that these neoliberals and neoconservatives sort of, you know, unite in and, and, and say that we're all about, but I don't think most Americans even go along with this. So, you know, it's just, it, it stands in su- such stark contrast, the rhetoric and the sort of ideas that you see from the Chinese and the Russians in this BRICS alliance with with what we hear from our politicians, our secretary of state, our diplomats. You know, we have this very arrogant, you know, attitude where, where we just get to call the shots and, and, and tell everybody what to think and, and how to act and how to behave and the way things are going to go. Whereas they're basing all of their diplomacy and their rhetoric on mutual respect and understanding. And again, win-win cooperative alliances. Yeah, yeah. So – the, the question is, you know, so, something has to give here. You know, the, the you know, U.S. is going to have to change its ways and, you know, scale back its empire and to some extent get a real job by rebuilding manufacturing. Um, or it can, of course, go on the crime spree and try, you know, military plunder uh, or, you know, use military force to stop the rise of these other powers. And, of course, that's the Thucydides trap that has, has been written about that in in history, uh, two-thirds of the time, whenever there's a, a number two power rising to overtake a number one power, the number one power wages a preemptive war to try to stop that rise. And so that's what we're looking at here, although our neoconservative leaders are making a very strange choice in terms of going after Russia rather than China, when the normal imperial strategy would be to go after China militarily and try to make friends with Russia. But instead, they've made this odd choice of antagonizing all of these three major powers, Russia, China, and Iran, all at the same time. And to some extent, antagonizing much of the world, which is why most of the world isn't respecting the American sanctions on Russia. So it's, it's I guess it's, it's arrogance or imperial hubris, but that kind of arrogance ends up you know, running hard into reality at some point. And I don't know, you know when that point is going to become really obvious, but it's, it's getting pretty close right now. I mean, it, look, looking at the political situation in the U.S. right now with uh, Trump under indictment and getting all of this attention, all of this media spotlight, uh, you know, he's going to be a kind of a destabilizing influence. And maybe the Democrats think that they can use this to get, you know, extremist Trump types nominated for Republicans and then they can beat them. So that's probably their strategy for the next elections. But they're really playing with dynamite, just like the foreign policy managers are playing with dynamite, because the way it all looks like it could work out is that the economic reckoning for these reckless policies could easily start to really hit by the next elections before 2024. And so if the U.S. has a really major economic problem going on, then 
I don't think most people are going to credit Biden and the, and the Democrats with being competent uh, managers who can deal with it. So it could end up, you know, giving us a President Trump or even a, you know, a Fuhrer Trump like the Democrats are so afraid of. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, but in any case, it certainly could really destabilize things. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, well, you know what? I want to go ahead and wrap up. I know you got to run here in just a few minutes. Um, really quickly, though, I wanted to ask you, um, I, and I know you're going to be writing about this for the next issue of American Free Press. This hit piece put out by the ADL, I only recently saw it earlier this morning. Um, I haven't had a chance to, to read it in, in, in any great detail, but you know, this is something that they regularly do. They go out and try to get people shut down from alternative media or from financial services like PayPal or, or, you know, any of these other platforms. So can you just give us like a brief little preview into what you're working on and, and what the ADL is up to? Yeah, I guess it was Monday that the ADL put out their latest hit piece. This time it's aimed at Substack. And I'm proud to say that I was number four on their list of targets uh, out of 19. So I must be doing something right. I, can't, I was <laughs> ahead of Dr. Mercola and Steve Kirsch and the libs of TikTok on their, their hit list. Uh, Con so congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. I wish I were making <laughs> half the money of any of those guys. But <laughs> in any case, I guess you know, must the ideas must be uh, really bothering them. In any case, yeah, the, the ADL, of course, has a, a long history of this kind of thing. And the problem is, even though they're such complete idiots, uh, or pretend to be at least, they have a lot of power and a lot of money. You know, their operating budget is almost $100 million a year. And so they can go after people and get people perched. And when I was kicked off of, uh, of GoFundMe and when I was kicked off of Patreon and when I was kicked off of YouTube, I'm pretty sure that the ADL had a lot to do with all three of those deplatformings. So when they come after you, you know, no matter how ridiculously they do it, no matter how stupid they look to anybody who actually takes the time to read what they're saying and think about it, they can still get people, you know, they can ruin people. And so it's, it's you know, I, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. <laughs> In any case, yeah. They, yeah, with what they, they just, you know, throw, you know, through their usual names at me, called me, you know, anti-Semitic and conspiracy theorist and yada, yada, yada. Uh, Holocaust uh, denier, I think, was in well, there, they, right? Well, they left that out this time. <laughs> oh, they maybe did? They, okay. Yeah, maybe they figured it out that I'm, I'm really not, you know, that's not my issue. I just I just speak honestly about everything. I've read a few books. And so, you know, just off-the-cuff remarks about that, not any real serious scholarly work or anything, has led to them in the past smearing me as a so-called Holocaust denier. I'm actually just an open-minded person who recognizes the reality that that particular debate is a real debate. And the many of the uh, revisionists seem to have a pretty strong case. Um, but in any case, they didn't bother with that this time. They went after me as an anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist conspiracy theorist. And they didn't like me uh, blaming the Jews in Israel for the creation of ISIS, which actually I, I haven't done. You know, so the guilty flee where none pursue it, because <laughs> I'm sure you know, Israel probably did have something to do with that. But I, that's not been my main focus. I've mostly said that, you know, Baghdadi was held for four years, not one year, as the U.S. military says. And so why are they covering that up? Well, they were probably MK altering him as they I mean, even the mainstream admits that ISIS was created in uh, in a U.S. prison camp in Iraq under the noses of the American guards. So I, I've really stressed the fact that the uh, you know the U.S. military has responsibility for that, and I've mostly been blaming the the U.S. But for whatever reason, the ADL thinks that I should be blaming uh, Jews and Zionists. So uh, yeah, whatever. 
And then they blame, they say, I blame Jews and Zionists for the terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001. Apparently, they don't have any problem blaming the Saudis and the Muslims or the Iraqis and the Muslims or whatever, but blaming the, the Jews and the Israelis, that would be uh, beyond the pale. And of course, the fact is that I recognize 9-11 as a neocon coup d'etat. And I think the single biggest reason it happened was to change, you know, to radicalize U.S. Mideast policy to benefit Israel by hijacking the U.S. military to destroy Israel's enemies in the region. So on that one, there's some truth to it. On the other hand, I have argued with people, including Ron Unz, uh, pushing back against the notion that it was just Israel. I think that there was significant U.S. high command chain involvement as well. So they're uh, grossly exaggerating that. And uh, and then they blame me for calling Israel genocidal. But hey, <laughs> I think the latest poll show that one third of Jewish Americans or young Jewish Americans uh, think that Israel or maybe was like one quarter, but a substantial fraction of American Jews think that Israel is genocidal. And they're right. And Francis Boyle, the international law professor, has written a very strong case uh, along those lines. So I plead guilty to that one. And then they, the last thing they, they threw at me was they said that, uh, that Barrett suggests that people who have a Jewish handler are at risk of being institutionalized and injected, referring to Ye's conspiratorial rants about his former personal trainer, Harley Pasternak. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, who who I, actually, we should say, actually did basically threaten him with institutionalization if he didn't shut his mouth and get back in line. I mean, he did leak he did leak some uh, some messages from him that um were, were basically threatening with, with just that. So there is a little bit of truth to that as well. Well, yeah, that was my point. But I, I, I did plead guilty to tasteless humor in the first degree because, you know, joking about people who have Jewish personal handlers are in danger of being injected institutionalized is pretty tasteless. I shouldn't really joke about this horrific threat that Pasternak uh, sent out to Ye because, you know, I mean, that was pretty nasty and Pasternak should have been arrested and charged for that. But he never was, of course. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So the ADL is once again targeting a, from what I understand, I mean, uh, Substack is basically more or less dedicated to free speech. I mean, I don't, I, I haven't really read of anybody being like kicked off of Substack for writing something politically incorrect or for, you know, engaging in quote unquote conspiracy theorizing or talking about taboo topics, at least to my knowledge, right? I mean, it is more or less dedicated to free speech. And I know you have to use, I think it's Stripe, right? In order to actually accept payments or, or, uh, or obtain subscriptions, like financial subscriptions from people. Yeah, I think I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so, Substack has been very pro-free speech, and they they're explicit about it. They they yeah. say that that's their mission. Well, and these are the types of organizations that the ADL works overtime to shut down <laughs> because they cannot stand any sort of free speech or anybody questioning their official narratives of history or current events. Much like the the, the neocons and the neoliberals running the U.S. empire don't like anybody questioning them, the ADL doesn't like anybody questioning them in America. So it it seems to be a lot of overlap between these two groups, a lot of uh, similar interests. Yeah, yeah, there's an arrogance there on both sides and uh, kind of a, a symbiotic arrogance in a way, although ultimately I don't think it's really good for either side. You know, both sides would be better off um, learning some humility, and they probably will have to before too long. Yes, absolutely. Well, I look forward to reading that article. That will be uh, very interesting. And, um, you know, another, uh, you know, American Free Press, we've been on the front lines of, of promoting free speech and, and covering, you know, issues relating to free speech. And this is certainly one of them. So I look forward to that. 
And yeah, Dr. Barrett, thank you very much for joining me today. This will be an ongoing topic. I'm sure we're going to continue to cover in the newspaper as this unipolar America-led world order continues to crumble and be challenged by much more reasonable, responsible players on the world stage. I think it's a very welcome development, frankly. Yeah, and certainly a silver lining in the dark cloud, although it's, it's, it's going to be a, a big adjustment for, uh, for us U.S. Americans. Yeah, but I think uh, I think we'll survive. We'll, we'll find a way to 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 not have to r- rule the world and invade all these different countries and stuff. So I think I think we can find other productive things to do. Hopefully, anyways. I would hope so. So all right, well, Dr. Barrett, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, you take care, and and we'll stay in touch and do this again in the future. Sounds good. Thanks, John. Thanks. Take care.